Hi everyone, uh, welcome back to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Welcome back to the show. Uh, very excited about today's episode. Um, someone who's become a good friend of mine is back on the show, and we're going to talk about something really interesting. So, um, welcome back to the show, Amanda Held Opelt. James, thanks for having me. It's always great to talk to you. Yeah, I love. Yeah, I love having you on the show. This is I think the third time you've been on the show. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Um, the last time was when your your book came out, which was amazing. Yeah. I'm really excited. And if you haven't got that book already, get go go get it. It's a book on grief. Um, Amanda knows a lot about grief. Um, and has, uh, yeah, we talked about rituals of grief last time you were here. Um, yeah. today we're going to talk about something really interesting and like something completely unexpected. But uh, when we were talking about doing another episode, but um, we're going to talk about the Black Death. It's 1300s, um, and its impact culturally and responses to it and grief and maybe how it also relates to the pandemic as well. So that's right. Um, yeah. And this was your James, idea, wasn't it? Yeah. So Yeah, I well, I told someone today I was like, they're like, How's your day going? And I was like, Today is the best day of my life because someone finally agreed to have a conversation with me about the black death of the thirteen forties. And they were they just scratched their head like they had no idea why I was so excited about this. <laughs> but I just find it to be such an interesting historic event. So, but so before, let me, before I tell you how I got interested in the Black Death, I'm curious to know, growing up in the UK, did you all study this at all? Like, was it kind of part of your historic background and yeah, schooling? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, we, we studied it at school. Um, uh, yeah, it's part of our history. I mean, the Great Fire of London. Um. I think I don't know whether it was this, it was this Black Death or whether it was another one. But there was certainly the Great Fire of London was a big part of wiping out the plague in London. Yeah, um, yeah. and we were taught about that. So I don't know whether that I can't remember. And I don't I don't know my history well enough to remember, remember when the Great Fire of London was. But I think it was around this time. Yeah, one um, of the subsequent outbreaks. I think you're right. Yeah, um, certainly one of the big outbreaks. It, it, it might have played, played a big part in stopping it because it, mm-hmm. it just wiped out a lot of the things that were causing it, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, we did learn about a little, little bit about it, yes. See, it, it's just interesting to me because obviously I'm American, in case people can't tell by my Southern accent, Southern American accent. We, we did not, you know, we tend to think of our history as starting, you know, in the 15 or 1600s, even though obviously there were vast indigenous empires before that time period. That, of course, was not traditionally covered in our history books as robustly, nor was, you know, European history, even though most of the, you know, white settlers that came to our shores were from Europe. And so they carried with them that history, those sociological contexts, those economic contexts, philosophical ideas. Um, It's just interesting that we just, we just didn't learn about it. And it was like, I kind of happened upon it in a book or just (laughs) saw it kind of come up. And it was like, how come how come no one talks about this? Half, almost half the population of Europe and parts of Asia and North Africa perished, you know, and we don't, we don't talk about it. We don't, you know, and it seems like, gosh, that would be a, uh, that would be kind of one of those catastrophic global events that 
is a before and after. And it's just odd to me that it doesn't enter. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm weird, James, but I'm like, I don't know why we aren't all talking about this at the bar, you know, in the doctor's offices in like with the dentist. Why does this not just come up in casual conversation? Cause it was such a big deal. Yeah, it was, uh, it was massive. I mean, it is, it was what 800, 800 years ago. Um, yeah, 800 years ago, yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah. It was a long time ago. Yeah. You know, a lot has happened since then. But, yeah, it's, it is it is kind of a big deal. Um, a lot of people died. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of people. Um, I, I think I may even have found – I think I heard once that the hospice movement was born out of it or something like yeah. that. There was some movement that was started – I think it was started by Christians that was – born out of the plague and many christians just stayed with people who had the plague and got the plague themselves because they were yeah, right. looking after them yeah um i think i think that's that's correct yeah well and i'll tell you what kind of started my interest in it i guess um was you know when i was researching for my book a hole in the world which is about you know historic grief rituals primarily western grief rituals um i every book that I read kept coming back to this, you know, massive outbreak of the plague in the 1340s and how that was kind of the before and after of our, of our historic grief practices and rituals, because there were so many people dying that rituals could not be performed. uh, You know, when anyone died, it was like people were just kind of left to die and, and the burials and the last rites. And so many of these beautiful rituals just kind of went away. And some people even, you know, we talk a lot about how many Asian cultures and African cultures tend to have their grief rituals intact. And that maybe one of the reasons they are not intact as much in the West goes back to this, this outbreak of the plague, which primarily impacted Europe, where people just kind of abandoned their rituals and never fully went back to them. Um, so that was the one thing that kind of piqued my interest. Um, another is that, you know, I'm, I'm actually working on a new writing project right now where I'm kind of studying the history of happiness and kind of what we think our individual right to happiness is, our right to pursue happiness as an individual. And a lot of kind of the philosophy that emerged around that um, really shifted in the immediate aftermath of the plague, just the way people think about their own individuality and their own personhood shifted after the plague. So there we are again. I'm like, gosh, everything keeps kind of coming back to this this major event that happened. And then I, I think the last thing that really got me interested was just the fact that we're living through a plague ourselves in many ways, a global plague. And it, in some ways it was a comfort, to, this sounds terrible, James, but it was a bit of a comfort to study the Black Death because you see just a complete lack of medical care, a complete chaos, no germ theory, complete desperation, and such a higher, higher mortality rate that in no way diminishes the significance of what we've all experienced in the last three years and the people we've lost and the changes that we've all had to endure. But it does kind of shed, I guess it does kind of um, give, offer some perspective of what it could have been and um, how far we have come in terms of medical care and communication and understanding of the body and, and 
disease. And so in some ways it was kind of heartening, I don't know, to, to study and to learn about how it could have been. Does that make sense? Yeah, I understand that completely. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, had COVID-19 hit 500 years ago, it would have killed a lot more people. Yeah. That's right. Um, so I mean, we wouldn't have had a, we wouldn't have had a vaccine. We wouldn't have known about masking or you know all that kind of thing. We wouldn't have, we wouldn't have known anything about it. I mean, people would have just got it and died. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, it makes you grateful for scientific breakthroughs, you know. Um, yeah. And, yeah. You know, and for the advancement of medicine and all those kind of things that. Yeah. That we now have means to deal with this stuff, you know. That's right. Um, so absolutely understand what you mean, yeah. yeah. And it is interesting that 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 seems to be a pivot point. Um, and, the, and it seems like a lot of that, a lot of the changes came about almost by necessity, like, mm. you know, because so many people were dying, you don't have time to do rituals of grief because there's right. so many people. Right. Right, and, um, and that's not because you don't want to do the rituals it's just because you don't have time for it that's right and it's then, not practical and then some then you lose so many people that maybe those rituals just die out by themselves and people just don't pick them up again right um, right and yeah. that's sad you know right. um, that we lost a lot of those rituals because we do right. rituals around grief right right and you even saw that happening in part during our pandemic where people weren't allowed to gather for funerals and they were having to not able to even say goodbye to loved ones as they were dying in the hospital. And so just, you know, I guess my, I don't want to get to the, the, the takeaway too soon, but I think my, the thing I'm always advocating for is like, let's maintain our grief rituals at all costs. Like do, do whatever we need to do to maintain them because you may think that they'll just, oh, they'll, they'll just come back. They'll magically reappear and we'll have them again. But it takes a concerted effort on the part of the population to say, no, we will, once things normalize, we will return to to this way of living. So, um, but you know, James, maybe for people like maybe Americans who listen to your podcast that are like, what is this black death you speak of? Because we didn't learn about it in, yeah. in school. Yeah. I'll give, I'll give like, this, this is kind of what we're, we're talking about here. Okay. So the, the bubonic, the bubonic plague was essentially a, a disease and it, 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 it didn't first appear in the 1340s in this massive outbreak. There was a prior plague that was fairly widespread, I think called the Justinian plague. I think that was in the sixth century. And they, I was even reading that they they have found evidence of the bubonic plague virus in burial grounds from much earlier than that even. But these outbreaks tended to be fairly isolated uh, up until the 1340s. And there's all kinds of speculation from medical theorists and, and medical historians as to why this particular outbreak was so significant. Um, but they, they believe it originated in kind of the, the Central Asia region and, and then around the 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 Black Sea, and that it kind of migrated um, on these merchant ships because there was a lot of trading of grain that was happening at the time, and rats love grain, and apparently the the bubonic plague was carried by the fleas that were living on the rats, and so as the rats got off the boats and into these port cities, they just carried the plague in abundance, and and part of the reason I think they think it was so bad in these places was because 
it, it was kind of the first time the plague moved from more nomadic societies, so people that are maybe wandering in more isolated regions, and now it was emerging in these crowded port cities and these urban centers that were just packed with people. And so it would just wipe through a town and then, you know, eventually emerge out into the countryside and then hit another town. Um, and another reason I think they think it was worse is because there were some, you know, we all know the word variant, <laughs> thanks to COVID-19, but there were apparently some variants of it, uh, particularly a new mnemonic variant that was spread through air droplets. And so that was kind of a really, really quick moving plague. And so just again, for context in the 13, I think 47 was when it first kind of emerged. And then in the year 48, 1349 was when it just really wiped out and made its way all the way to the UK uh, and all over Europe, again, parts of North Africa and and Asia. And, you know, it, it killed, I mean, scholars disagree on this, but they say anywhere, you know, the lowest estimates are 30% of the population, highest estimates are up to 50 and 60%, you know, yeah. some cities up to 60%. So if you think about that, I mean, if you think of one, you know, um, a four, th- two out of five people say, or, you know, five out of 10 people being killed, it, it's just impossible to imagine. Um, and then it, it eventually kind of died out and went through the population, but then it would reemerge again and again. And just like you said, James, you know, right, I think around the 1650s and 1660s, right before the fire, I think the fire of London was like, was it 1666? Sometime around that, you know, so they, it would kind of pop up again and again. It was never quite as widespread as it was in that, that one specific time period. But so when we talk, when we're the conversation we're having today, we're kind of locked in on that one, that one time period. So that is my layman's summary of the black death of the 1340s. Yeah, that's, that's pretty accurate. Yeah. And I, 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 I was reading about it, you know, um, you know, preparing for this, that it took, it took about 150 to 250 years for the population to get back to the level that it was before. Right. Yeah, wild. Like 15th or 16th century, but before it got back to the same population there was, you know, yeah. that's how much of a that's how many people died. You know, I mean, yeah, like fifty percent of people. You know, uh, up to fifty percent of people. That's a lot of people. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, uh, I probably can't even comprehend how many people that is. It's it's just so many. Um, and obviously, yeah. the populations were smaller then, but nevertheless, it's still a lot of people. Um, right, and so the, the, I mean, the impact on that of that on the people that were left behind that survived, maybe yeah. they obviously didn't get plague, would have yeah. would have been considerable, you know, and on culture generally, because you, um, and I was thinking about, um, I was actually thinking today about um, how the how World War One affected people so much that they were desperate to avoid World War Two. So yeah. much they signed pacts with Hitler. They were so desperate right. because they were so traumatized by the First World War. Yeah. And that's yeah. and so these things have an impact on people. They have an impact on culture, um, like big traumatic <sighs> events. Yeah. Well, and that's um, it's interesting you bring up the word trauma because it. I don't. I don't know that they had language around that yet. You know, I think that yeah. they had a lot yeah. of. Yeah language around melancholia and studies of depression and studies of sadness and sorrow, but just understanding the physiological, psychological impact of trauma and kind of naming, like, what does it mean to be 
collectively traumatize. And I think we're all kind of thinking about that now because, again, it, it, it doesn't really do any good to compare and say one was worse than the other. But even in our own outbreak of a pandemic, we are all kind of collectively traumatized by the changes and by the, the fear and all, all of that. And it's just interesting to think, gosh, everything that was done in the 50 years to 100 years was born... It, it, it was was grown in the soil of trauma for people. And what does that mean for their beliefs? What does it mean for the way they interacted? What does it mean for, for um, you know, you, you saw a lot of violence that emerged after the plague, particularly against marginalized minority communities. And so one of the kind of the most, tra- well, I don't know, most tragic, I mean, one of the d- deeply tragic things and just, um, truly um, evil things that happened in the aftermath of the plague is that a lot of the blame was put on Jewish communities. And so there was, um, you know, attempts to wipe out Jewish communities that, that remained. And um, it's, I've read some interesting things about this too, is that people observe that maybe the plague didn't seem to devastate Jewish communities as much. And people speculate that that might be because, you know, Christian communities, Catholic communities thought that cats were evil. And so they they did not have cats roaming around communities, whereas the Jewish people didn't particularly have opinions on cats. And so there may have been cats c- coming and going in their homes and, and in their neighborhoods and cats kill rats and rats carry the plague. And so it's just, you know, something as silly as cats being around is the thing that may have protected these uh, Jewish communities. And so because they had higher survival rates, people's already probably festering anti-Semitism, you know, just observed that and looked for any reason to show violence against these people. And so it's just interesting how it's not that the trauma creates hatred, because I think the hatred is often there already. But it certainly incites people to act on our most um, vile tendencies, right? Yeah, and it, yeah, it provides fertile soil for these things that we that we already believe to, you know, become you know to grow and become something more sinister, uh, right? And and of course, people very very angry about losing loved ones, probably. Right. Wanting to and 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 of course, taking that anger out on some on a group that you don't particularly like is well, it's a grief response, isn't it? It's a, um, an unhealthy grief response, obviously. But it's but it but that's what it is. You're you're, you're directing your anger and your grief on onto somebody else by trying to find somebody to blame. You know, right, um, right. Like, so you're to blame for you're the reason I lost my mother. You're the reason I. I lost my child, you know, like, and I'm, and they're just taking it all out on, on them. Um, yeah. And sadly, that 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 has happened throughout history with different with different, you know, atrocities and, yeah. um, where certain people groups have suffered, and it's always marginalised groups that get blamed or suffer or suffer the most. Right. Um, unfortunately, um, yeah. Well, and it feels like that. I don't know. I I'm I haven't looked at statistics on violent crimes of late, but it does feel like the vitriol in our country, at least, is just increasing and increasing and increasing. And I know there are all kinds of sociological um, factors to that, whether that's social media echo chambers or increased individual, whatever. I don't know. But I I do just wonder if we've all been like a... um, 
you know, a powder keg about to explode. Um, I'm, that's now I'm thinking about Hamilton. <laughs> I am a powder keg about to explode. I'm sorry. I'm thinking of Lin-Manuel. <laughs> but, um, you know, we're like, um, what are the pressure cooker, pressure cookers? You know, we've all been living in this pressurized environment where you don't know if you're going to be able to have holidays with your family. You lost a loved one and you didn't get to say goodbye. You didn't even get to go to a funeral. Masking versus not masking. But, you know, um, just having to stay home and isolated environments and, and just navigating social situations as a person who's tried so carefully to be cautious and to follow all the rules and and to look out for the people who are vulnerable health wise it's been stressful to navigate and i i i find myself um just getting set off by things much more easily this year and 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 becoming enraged more easily and i think it's just my um kind of my neurological system is still healing from two or three years of unknown and two or three years of fear and two or three years of, of, of isolation. And that's certainly, you know, times probably times 10 times a hundred, what the people experienced during that time period. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah. Um, and we see, we've seen, we've seen over here, you know, governments blaming wanting to scapegoat certain people groups. Immigrants, oh, yeah. in particular, um, I think that's happened. That happened. Um, your last president um, before Joe Biden. I won't say his name, but uh, he, yeah, he, he, sh- he shall not be named. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and it, it's just people are angry and, and have a lot of stuff stored up, and someone wants somewhere to put it. And, that's right. Oh, that's such a good way to put it. Yeah. You know, and uh, I mean, uh, the pandemic lockdown in particular forced people to reflect on themselves a lot mm. right and some people some people some people's response to that was to um try and find someone to blame or find a conspiracy or, yeah. or yes. like say this isn't real you know um this is all made up this is all like you know and just look for any conspiracy that they can um or to blame the, the government or to blame some blame the establishment you know um and these people are people i almost feel sorry for them because they're they're in denial they're they can't deal with they're unable to accept the reality of the situation that we're in right and even when you've got doctors and scientists presenting the facts like who are qualified and have been working in this field for decades and people won't are not listening to them because they just almost because they don't want to, they don't want to accept what they're hearing. Uh, and it, you know, it's, it, it's sad. Um, but those people can cause harm as well. Uh, and it's, right. again, it's a, it's a kind of trauma response in that you just don't want to, it's a grief response, really. You just don't want to accept what is, what is happening. Um, you know, yeah. uh, and we've seen that. I'm sure that that happens in, in one way or another during the, during the black death as well. Um, that some people just didn't want to accept what was going on, wanted to kind of pretend it wasn't happening, or or, or, pretend, or afterwards pretend like it didn't happen. Yeah, kind of that denial. Well, and you know, it's it's as you're talking, I'm just thinking how sad it is that people were unwilling to accept the truth. That they're so hungry for a conspiracy theory, 
um, or someone to blame. And, and I think about the people who lived in the 1340s and they did not have the gift of science. They, did, they had no idea where this was coming from. They had no idea what it was, how it was spread. And here we have this precious, precious commodity that is the truth, that is science, that is some explanation. It is a gift to have science and have an explanation. And people rejected it and, and didn't, didn't want to hear it and wanted to listen to their own science or make up their own science. And it's just kind of sad because I just think, oh, what would a peasant in 1349 France have given to have access to science and the truth and, and safety measures? And, and it would have, it would have made all the difference. And we had it and we were, so many people rejected it. And so many people said, no, I don't want to listen to the science. I don't want to do what the doctors tell me. I think it's something else. I think it's different. And that's just kind of sad when you know what, what a gift science is. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I knew that was going to happen. Unfortunately, I could, <coughs> I, had a, I had a feeling that was going to happen because I had this sense from the very beginning that things weren't ever going to be the same and that this was going to be a grieving uh, of the life that we'd had before and um, having to accept new realities um, and changes to how we live our lives that people maybe didn't want to accept. Yeah, oh, yeah. And that there would be some people who didn't want to accept it. Yeah. Um, and it's always sad when you can see it coming and then you see it happening. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So excuse me. It might be yeah. It might be I you we were talking a little earlier offline just about some of the spiritual impact of the plague. And I'm I'm kinda interested in like the parallels for modern day. Although I, I, I suppose it's dangerous to make too many parallels, but but there are certainly some overlaps. One thing I learned about is that, you know, really was the the plague that in some ways made a path for the Reformation, which was this kind of obviously huge upheaval in church life in Europe and and beyond. But it, it was interesting when I was reading that the, there was kind of this split in terms of the church's response. And, you know, in there are many cases where clergymen abandoned their station, right? And they were like, we can't deal, we're leaving. And, and particularly the bishops were able to kind of cloister themselves away in their ivory palaces and not deal with the dying peasantry. But there were many parish priests and friars and, and the like who took great pride in the fact that they were going to continue to perform last rites no matter the risk. And this is this is backed up by the data that shows that um, clergymen died at much higher rates than the general population. Um, and so, and, and part of that was because they kind of bravely insisted on continuing to, to do their duties and care for their flock, which is actually really inspiring. Um, again, the, the bishops, not so much inspiring, but some of these kind of local parish priests acted with great dignity and great risk to their own health. But but what we also see after the plague is because of that lack of clergy in the aftermath, there are just so few, uh, you know, religious leaders left that they started to kind of lessen the requirements 
um, necessary to become a priest and to and to enter into church life and just kind of let anybody in and some of the the training that would have been required and the accountability that would have been required just all, kind of all fell by the wayside because they were basically just desperate for warm bodies, um, still warm male bodies. They weren't necessarily welcoming women into that role yet. That could have helped solve the problem, but um and so it's just interesting that more and more you just saw really unqualified people who basically entered the priesthood for, you know, the money or the power. And, and that led to an even increased lack of trust among, you know, between the people and the church um, and these kind of like. Um, really just uh, poor uses of power within within the church. Um, another really interesting thing that happened was the flagellant movement. Did you read anything about that or did you hear anything about the flagellant? No, no, please tell us. Yeah. This is just, this is so fascinating is that, you know, most people accepted that the plague was judgment from God. This kind of like, they, they certainly blame certain people groups for making it worse, you know, um, but they basically accepted that God was was angry at people for loose morals and that he was letting his judgment rain down on Europe. And they and so a lot of people took to um, seeking penance and a lot of repentive uh, uh, repentance and kind of their liturgy and all of that. And, and these groups of flagellants, basically what they would do is they were men who would parade through the streets and would just whip themselves, kind of ritualistic whipping of themselves as a way of inf- inflicting self-harm um, to kind of garner God's favor or to make a bodily display of their repentance. But these, so this is a huge movement. A lot of people joined in and, um, you know, it was, they were kind of seen as these powerful figures in the community, these people that would parade through and do these rituals. And sometimes they even like caused riots in town. So there were, you know, probably the well-behaved flagellants. And then there were the flagellants that were like really just wild and trying to cause a riot. And, um, you know, again, probably people traumatized and they would sometimes, you know, kind of take control of a certain, you know, town or a little parish area and just wreak havoc. And it, so it's just really interesting to me that you see in the wake of the plague, a deinstitutionalizing of the faith and how that was good in some ways. And it was bad in other ways. Like it, there are certain um, uh, documents from that time period that say, you know, um, bishops would say, we now give permission to anyone. Anyone can offer last rites. Because we don't have priests left, so just any lay person can offer last rites. And one document even says, even women, <laughs> even a woman can offer last rites, which was very scandalous at the time. <laughs> but that's kind of interesting that, like, wow, that's empowering, this acknowledgement that the, the lay person can participate and lead spiritual rituals and be kind of a mediator between people and God. And that's really beautiful. But then you have these kind of lax um you know, kind of uh, just accountability in in terms of entrance exams for new priests and that deinstitutionalizing, which is, oh yeah, anybody can be a priest. It's fine. Come on, join the party. And in some ways that's really freeing and that creates lots of opportunities, but it also creates a lot of danger. And there is some real beauty and importance to an institution run well. Does that make sense what I'm saying? I do. I understand it. Yeah. There's certainly a lot of of being prepared and trained and understanding boundaries and understanding appropriate behavior and 
you know, um, and character assessment and all of those things, which are really important, right? When you're when you're taking up any kind of position of authority, right? And yeah. um, and so not to do that was probably flagrant, you know, and reckless, you know. Mm-hmm. Even though you could understand why, because they were the, they were just running out of priests because they were all dying. Yeah. Um, but again, like uh, yeah, like you say, it creates danger. Yeah. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. And that's, I think I, I don't know, maybe you're this way too. You're a thoughtful when it comes to faith and spirituality, but I, I tend to kind of waffle back and forth between like deep disdain for the institution of religion and then kind of deep reverence for it and appreciation for what it can provide. Um, mm. You know, I, I, I feel like, it's so important to empower the individual and their, their, their own spiritual journey and their own relationship with God, that it can stand alone and that you don't have to just be completely beholden to or subject to an institution, particularly if it's broken or toxic at the same time, there's a lot of accountability and, and shared wisdom and generational wisdom that comes with an institution that's intact. And so I don't know that that's just something that, studying about that time period and the religious aftermath has really led me to, to, to think through is like, yeah, it's really cool that people, these flagellants just kind of all got together and decided we're going to act out our spirituality on our own and do these, these, these weird rituals that we came up with. And it's like, Oh, that I'm okay. It's cool that you're processing your stuff that way, but they ended up doing a lot of harm too. And so um, without any kind of guidance, they did a lot of harm. And so I don't know. I, I, I go back and forth day to day. It's different. <laughs> I, I resonate precisely exactly with what you what you're saying. Because I still have a lot of a lot of time for like Celtic um, liturgies and yeah. things like Taze and silent mm-hmm. prayer and mm-hmm. uh, communal eating. You know, um, uh, and uh, things like that. So I, I uh, and you know um, what's the other one? Uh, Lectio Divina, the things like that. Yeah, I, I have yeah. a lot of time for those things, and I think they're really amazing spiritual practices, um, um, which are very old now as well. Um, yeah. And, but at the same time, I have I don't have so much time for the institution of you know, mm-hmm. um, and there there are to- there's, because there's a lot of toxic elements to it. Yeah. Um, there are there are elements that are not toxic as well. Right. But it's very difficult to distinguish between them a lot of the time because, yeah. I mean, even more so in America because evangelicalism is so ingrained in your culture, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah. But it's not here at all. Evangelicalism certainly isn't. And uh, and so, you know, it's, yeah, it's it's difficult. Like to, but in a sense, you kind of have to find this pathway through where you can keep the practices that mean something to you Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. Without having, without them having to be part of an institution, without having to then be part of, they don't have to be that. They can be something that you use, um, which helps you engage with your spirituality or your faith or whatever that faith is. Um, yeah. You know, because that that's that's how I still connect with Jesus is is because I have those those practices. Rather than yeah. I, don't, I don't connect with Jesus through 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 religion anymore in a sense i have a diff- different way of experiencing him and uh, and spirituality generally um 
and it includes those practices you know and they're practices yeah. that i've that i that i that i've that i've used um a lot and that mean a lot to me yeah 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 well and it you know wasn't just religion either it was just all of the philosophies that emerged after the plague tended to emphasize the rights and the reasoning of the individual person. And up until that point, people had been thought of more collectively, collectively in terms of their socioeconomic status, um, their, you know, their ethnicity, where they were and the social order, that type of thing. And that, you know, suddenly you have, um, you know, the, the the humanist and you had the enlightenment um, philosophers starting to see the individual as the holder of rights. You know, it's, it doesn't matter if you are, you know, a, a peasant or a king or, you know, whatever the case may be, is that the, the claim was is that each individual has rights. And that's when you start to see the fall of the monarchies and rise of of democracies. Now, we all know in America that, well, I, I should say we all know. I, I hope we are all beginning to realize that when we claim that we believed in the rights of every individual, our founders did not make provisions for um, black slaves that had been brought against their will to our country. They obviously did not stand up for the individual rights of all humans. Um, nevertheless, the, the philosophical dialogue was kind of moving in that direction. And and some people say it was because the Black Death was so indiscriminate. And there's a lot, we, you know, the artwork that, that came out of that period. Um, the dance macabre was a really popular artwork motif, and it had all these dancing skeletons. And some of the skeletons would be wearing a crown and others would be wearing a peasant's hat and other skeletons would be wearing, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a wimple, whatever the, the nuns would wear. And it was just kind of this image that, hey, no, it doesn't matter if you're royalty. It doesn't matter if you're religious. It doesn't matter um, kind of, yeah, what your socioeconomic status is. Death is indiscriminate. And so I think people did suddenly begin to start thinking of individuals as their own existing entities, if that makes sense. And so that... Reformation, you know, we don't need we don't need the clergy to be our mediator before God. We don't need the clergy to pray our our way out of purgatory. Um, you know, democracy, uh, uh, you know, re republics, th things like that, that that really be the fall of the monarchy. Um, those are the just the kind of things. And again, I'm not a philosopher and I'm not a historian. This is just stuff that I've read, but it's just really interesting that it seems like this plague planted the seed to start thinking individually as individuals and as individuals with equal rights in a way that had never even been thought of before. Yeah. And of course you can say that that was kind of taken to extreme and was <clears throat> abused in a way because individualism kind of can lead to, if you take it to its extreme can lead to capitalism. Yeah. Right. And that's an oppressive right. system, which, 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 you know, which doesn't, which doesn't treat people as equals, really, because it's almost survival of the fittest, but it's almost like everyone for themselves, you know. The kind yes, of, yes. It's like the toxic version of individualism, you know what right. I mean? Right, right. Well, 
Yeah. And that's what documents from the time say. It was, it was kind of the first time. Well, I don't know it was the first time, but it was certainly a time where it was every man for himself. There's, there's accounts of parents abandoning children and children abandoning parents and wives abandoning husbands. It's like they open the door to their little village home or wherever, and they see those, the, black bulbous, the, 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 these black boils that would form on the glands that was kind of the, the precursor of death. They would see that and they would just leave. They would, they would, they wouldn't care for them. They wouldn't into them. And it, of course it makes sense because they knew how swiftly the plague killed, but it was, there was, it was, you weren't even thinking in terms of family units anymore. It was just like, save yourself at all costs because you know, there's nothing you can do. Like, and that just never really left people entirely. And so, you know, there's pros and cons to individualism. <laughs> like it's cool that we now all believe that we each have individual rights. Yes. That's fantastic. <laughs> but, that is right, we're, yes. Love that. But you know, there are just, there are other sociological, economic, all kinds of implications to that, that, you know, we, we live in, we live in the aftermath of it, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's amazing, isn't it? How, how these events do ultimately end up shaping everything, you know, they end up yeah. shaping your politics they end up shaping um, society. They end up shaping every aspect of your life, you know, uh, and that takes time but to meet its full impact, but it does happen. Um, yeah. And I was actually doing some research before and the, the psychological effects of the Black Death, um, in particular in north of the Alps, um, yeah. there, was, there began to be a preoccupation with death Yes. And the afterlife, you know, and mm. I know, and this was <clears throat> demonstrated largely in poetry, sculpture and painting. Yeah. Like, I think we just touched on it before that they, there was a lot of people reflected more on, you know, on themselves, on their lives, on, on what happens after like, yeah. death, you know, and these things started to be more in, in people's consciousness. And of course, Art is always a way where people can express what's going inside of them. Yeah. Um, and um, but the other thing that I found out was was that, like I think again something that you touched on before is that a lot of people turn to mysticism. Mm. And because, um, like you say, that led to the Reformation and you know the old institutions of of, of Christianity, kind of and religion, kind of were challenged. For the first time, yeah, right? shifted and, major, majorly shifted. Uh, mysticism was one of the things that that happened. Um, it, yeah, it's it's, and again, I was thinking of what's happening right now. Yeah, you know, I mean, I think the, the kind of deconst- what's called deconstruction. Um, I'd started already. I think it started in twenty. I think it took a big step forward in twenty sixteen because there were certain things that happened in twenty sixteen. Yeah, um, <laughs> but I think a lot that year yeah 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 absolutely yeah um (laughs) and but i think in i think the pandemic i think it gave it extra momentum because um a lot of people were like we talked about before were forced to sit and reflect on themselves and their spiritual journeys in there and uh, and what they believed and whether they belonged where they should be or whether their values reflected whether they where they were or you know Mm -hmm. and started to ask all these questions and, right, and I think a lot of and started to deal with a lot of unprocessed trauma, maybe as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, as you yeah. do all of that, that that is 
that is fertile soil for what's called deconstruction and spiritual awakening and like you know moving out of <clears throat> toxic religion moving out of religious institutions which is exactly what we took what we've just been talking about happened after the plague uh, yeah. black death and it's really interesting isn't it how how these things seem to these patterns seem to repeat that you know when when we're when we have these big shifts and which impact our day-to-day lives in such a way and people suffer and we're forced to almost reflect on ourselves and our lives that suddenly people start to things start to shift um yeah yeah the things they believe to be true and 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 isolation will do you know there's there are many good things about isolation they they do kind of force you sometimes to slow down and grapple with what is true and what you really believe and it's also really lonely and and it can also be really um you know it, it means sometimes i think we did kind of kind of dive deeper and deeper into our echo chambers um during during, I don't know, James, I go back and forth on it because part of me thinks, you know what, we all just dove nose first into our echo chambers because we were living online and we were living with just our own thoughts. And But at the same time, we also got maybe some healthy separation from some of the, maybe the institutions that were telling us what to believe in ways that maybe weren't so harmful. And we were given the opportunity to think for ourselves. I think it was maybe a little bit of both. And so just seeing how it all shakes out, I think is going to be really interesting. I know a lot of people that, that kind of stopped participating in traditional religious institutions at the time. And so it's, it's going to be interesting to see where they emerge in community at that point, you know, after that, like um, if I, 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 I tell you what I worry about most is like, just our increasingly isolated lives that it just it it just feels like you know even working from home and all the companies that offer work from home opportunities i'm all for work from home when the outbreak warrants it and it's safer for people to work from home but i i worry about the kind of social touch points that we're going to lose when we don't even have the opportunity to go into the office and rub shoulders with people who are different than us you know what i mean um, it means that people are just going to kind of stick to their ideological bubbles and stick in the safety of their nuclear families and kind of custom make their social circles and not be forced to be exposed to people who are different than them. And I, I worry about that a little bit, you know? No, I understand exactly what you mean. And yeah, I mean, my job, I, I work from home three days a week. I go into the office two days a week. Okay. And I like that balance. I wouldn't want to work five days a week in the office. I also wouldn't yeah. work five days a week at home. I, I would yeah. not want to do that. And um, and yeah, it's it's good. It's good sometimes. I mean, I'm I'm an introvert as well. Like you know, um, so <laughs> I don't necessarily like being around people that much. But I definitely value being able to go into the office twice a week and see people and talk to people and interact with people and interact with the world generally yeah because i have to go yeah. out i have to get the bus i have to you know i have to go and buy my lunch i have to you know, i have to i have to go and interact with the world which is a good thing you yeah. know yeah um but i'm also able to have boundaries because when i work at home i'm on my own because i live I live alone so i have so i have good introvert space on my own as well um yeah and it's just but you're right there is that that is a danger um yeah um because we need to be 
part of healthy growth is is um, having relationships and educating yourself on people who are unlike you um, yeah. in all different kinds of ways and yeah. learning from them and understanding their trying to understand their experiences and because yeah you're right if we get trapped in our bubbles then we'll then we will lose empathy uh and we that's can't right. and losing empathy would be we can't lose empathy as a culture that that's a very dangerous road to go down um and yeah so that's 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 very wise what you said well i I love what you, I love that you use that word empathy. Um, I was reading that book Bowling Alone by Robert Putnam. I don't know. It's probably, it was written about America, but it's kind of written about how, um, you know, in the early 1900s, you know, they felt like there's kind of this moral panic because they thought that society was kind of fracturing um, because of urbanization and industrialization and da, da, da. And so they started forming a bunch of clubs that people could join. So everything from rotary clubs to lions clubs, to veterans clubs, to, you know, boy scouts and girl scouts and all these just social clubs like started forming to try to kind of get people back in community together after they had started moving to big cities and all that stuff. And, um, basically he writes the book about how like we don't do clubs anymore. Like people, that's why it's called bowling alone. He said, no one bowls in leagues anymore. They just bowl on their own. And, you know, he kind of makes the the case for why these forced, I don't say institutions, but just, um, kind of, uh, opportunities for interaction with people outside of your own bubble are so important for the life and vitality of, of, a, of a country, of, of a community, because I mean, I know what it's like to kind of sit in isolation and make, have really judgmental thoughts about people who voted differently than me or people who believe different than me. When I worked at, I don't work in an office anymore. That's why I think I'm starting to have some, some problems, some social problems. But when I worked in an office, I was forced to kind of work on projects and 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 work on a mission shoulder to shoulder with people who voted differently than me, who thought differently than me. And it built empathy. It didn't mean that I agree. I never ended up agreeing with them. And I always still disagreed with their thoughts, but I at least understood where they were coming from. They were humanized and it made dialogue possible, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I just worry as we kind of, if we're bowling alone and, you know, we're losing some of these social touch points, um, what is that going to mean for us? And I think it's just been exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, yeah. You know, big and one thing, this whole, you know, um, takeover of Twitter and people leaving Twitter and, yeah. you know, uh, has taught me is, as I kind of, I created an account on Mastodon, um, which I use, you know, I'm, I'm using not every day, but I'm using it fairly regularly. Uh, I've been there and it's a whole different atmosphere to Twitter. And being there and being on Twitter a little bit less, just being detached from it a little bit, has made me realise what actually that Twitter is, is. Twitter wants us to be outraged. Yeah. Right. The algorithm is set up for us to be outraged. It, it, yes. it literally trains our brains to find ways to get outraged. And yeah. It wants because that's what gets likes and clicks and all that kind of. That's what gets the algorithm going, right? Yeah. On yeah. Mastodon, there's no algorithm for that. So if you like yeah. if you like somebody's post, it doesn't change the algorithm at all. It doesn't wow. get it seen by anybody else. It doesn't 
It doesn't mean they get more followers. It doesn't mean they get more attention at all. It's yeah. just that you like it. <laughs> yeah. And it's a whole different concept, you know. And um, and I just realized, like, you know what? This is, this is not good. This is why we get all these fallouts with people on Twitter all the time and these fights on Twitter is because this is how it's training our brain to think is normal. And it's not yeah. normal. I mean, getting outraged about injustice, yes, that's fine. That's that is appropriate. Outraged about yeah. things which matter, that's important. yeah. But getting outraged over things which in the in the bigger context of things are not as important is not healthy. Yeah. Or just looking for reasons to be outraged is not healthy. Um, yeah. And and that 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 probably damages how we have relationships outside of Twitter as well. Because right. the brain starts to think this is how you do relationships and it's not. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I mean, not to bring it back full circle, but can you imagine what the bubonic plague would have been like without science, right? But with <laughs> with social media oh <laughs> and God. with Twitter. And I mean it would have been I, I feel like it would have been a complete disaster, you know? Um I, I don't know. It's impossible to say. But, you know, just thinking of them kind of enduring that that catastrophic event without those without those mechanisms, it's just really interesting to think about, you know. Um, but there's there, OK, so there's one thing I'm, I really want to get your opinion on before we wrap. Um, mm. And so I, when I think about like. So you think about the bubonic plague and all of the things that changed afterwards, like it's really interesting because there was such a. I mean, there's all kinds of things and it's so, it so parallels what we experienced that they think that there was a climate change after the, after the plague, because all of a sudden all of these fields that have been tilled, you know, for, for farming became forest again and, and became lush forest. And so the atmosphere, the climate changed after that. And, you know, I don't know, I feel like in those two to three weeks when we were really shut down, like they say that the skies were clearer than they'd been in a hundred years, you know? Yeah. I remember. Um, I, I was thinking of that. Yeah. And, and I actually remember um, the first time I went to the office after lockdown, I had to, we still had to go in once a week, even during lockdown. Yeah. And I was, oh, yeah. I'm a key worker. And, but I remember there's a river right outside the front of my office. So like, um, and I, and I remember walking and there's a little bridge that goes over it. I remember walking over that and seeing how clear the water was. Yeah. Then I was like, wow. Like, like it was, it was, it was so tangible. It was just, wow. This, right. And of course there's hardly any traffic around. There's not hardly any cars on the road. It's like, it's, it's like, wow, my word, this is this is tangible yeah and the leaves were greener and uh, yeah the air the, the sky was clearer and I, yeah it was and I liked it I, I liked the fact that that was happening it was all so the part of me was thinking is this mother nature just trying to tell us something like just like like just stop uh, is this you know um you know and I mean, the start, the, the kind of honeymoon period of the pandemic, if you can call it that, where yeah, where, but where we were all clapping for the NHS every week. I know, I know, we were, I know. And everyone was doing that together. Everyone, people were coming outside on the streets and clapping for the NHS, yeah. and people were, you know, and, and like you said, the air was clearer, and like 
Um, it was like we were, it was like everyone was actually going to see this together and we were supporting each other. Right? Yeah, it's, it's like, like a reset. Once, once, once fatigue set in, people then that's when all this that's when all this stuff started with conspiracies and anti-vaxxers and like people thinking that it's some kind of giant that it wasn't real, you know, and all these kind of other things started springing up a few weeks a few weeks or months after that, like yeah, um, and. But for those first, if it stayed like that through the whole of the pandemic, as it was in the first yeah. few weeks, I think we would have got through it a lot better. <laughs> I know. But, it was like this, yeah. yeah, this sweet moment where you think, we're going to learn something from this. Like everyone's going to look around them and see what this, di- see what slowing down our, our consumeristic pace, they're going to see, see what it the beauty that happened as a result in nature for the climate and we're going to change. Right. And, and I, I can't tell you how many people I know that said, I just, it was so good to finally slow down and we've really learned a lot that we need to cut more things out of our schedule and we need to spend more time doing the things that are really important and resting and, and, and this appreciation we had for essential workers, all of that felt like we all were like bought in for about three weeks, <laughs> three weeks, maybe five weeks. And then it all just kind of went to hell. And I, it, it, it makes me really sad. I mean, I, James, it's interesting you say about the river. I would really love to do like a study on like natural phenomena because we had like a rainbow in the sky every week of the pandemic. It was, I saw so many rainbows that year. Yeah. The leaves, um, you know, we have the, the, the changing fall colors. They were the most beautiful that they've ever been. And I know people that have lived in the mountains here for their whole lives. And they said it was the be- most beautiful fall we've ever had. It was just like nature. Like we saw birds and animals and things we'd never seen. It was just like nature came alive. And it's just like, oh, what would happen if we just slowed down our this, like the drumbeat of productivity that was just like plundering the earth <laughs> it's a beauty you're like can yeah. we all just yeah you know yeah and it really showed you what the it showed i mean it showed me that capitalism the, the, the kind of like, oh capitalism is not normal this is not how we were meant to live on the earth yeah right yeah because this is what is because this is damn this is clearly damaging i mean i knew this before anyway but it, it just brought it home the reality of it that yeah. this is really this is not we need to be doing things differently we have to right like and and i think you're right about the essential workers i don't think people have forgotten that i don't think people have forgotten right. that at all. although um the government have forgotten that because they're not raising um they, they've cut they've cut essential workers salaries so much that they're having to go on strike you know nurses are having to go on strike because they're, not, well, because they're not getting pay rises, like, and yeah. MPs are getting ten percent pay rises, and they're getting expenses, and like they're happy for they're happy to do that, but they're not happy to give yeah. it to. And you've got people, people, you've got you've got members of the government asking nurses to take a pay cut as part of a sacrifice for Ukraine, as if that's got anything to do with nurses' pay, right? Um, right, and um, well, well, you know, and it, it's just really sad, and. And there are still there are a few people who, who get angry with these people for striking, but most but more people than than normal are now supportive of people striking to get especially public sector workers. Because I, I remember twenty years ago people hated like people were almost allergic to, to strike action. The yeah. majority of people didn't like it because we've been indoctrinated by by you know by Margaret Thatcher and the right to think this is all bad. All strikes are bad. 
And now it's not like that at all. The culture is shifting. I've noticed this, especially kind of people born, you know, around 2000, you know, uh, or just before who are kind of in their early 20s or whatever or younger. Um, they've got a whole different perspective yeah. on the world and on politics. And they are not going to go back and just re-elect these right-wingers. Um, capitalists. Yeah. They're not going to do that. Um, and that, that actually gives me a lot of hope because well, they see they see what the world is and they understand and they're not going to just accept it. And, yeah. And that's a good thing. <laughs> Yeah. And it's history. This is history repeating itself because in the wake of the Black Death, the the um, the government officials at the time, there was such a labor shortage that they had to figure out, you know, that the, they were starting to be kind of rebellion and pushback at the, the serf and the peasant level. And so they had to kind of so instead of kind of raising wages or creating more equity, they tried to create more control to kind of try to control these people and make sure they had enough laborers. And that's what eventually led to the the peasant, you know, the famous peasant revolt um, of, I think it was 1381, which totally changed the way the economic fabric of Europe worked from there on out. Um, and I, 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 you know, it's like, I think these the the whatever again we never had this in America um, but whatever you all call your upper class people <laughs> throughout history the 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 royalty and the um you know the lords they I think they finally saw just how essential these peasant and serf workers were for their very existence um, and I I think that if nothing else. I hope that the pandemic made all of us aware of the importance of these essential workers that we so often take for granted and not just healthcare workers, but the people who harvest our food, the the logisticians who deliver our food, um, kind of these more, you know, the people that drive the buses and maybe the more kind of what we would see is bottom of the totem pole in terms of I don't know, job or economic class. They are the people that make society turn around. I mean, they're the ones that kind of make the, the world go around in many ways. And we've denigrated them and we've not valued them and we've not seen how important they are until we go shopping at the grocery store and there's no avocados there for our avocado yeah. toast. And we're like, what happened to my avocados? And you, you realize that these essential workers who are nameless, who are marginalized in society, immigrant workers low income workers, these are the people that are making our lives happen. And I, I hope that, you know, I, I even this Thanksgiving, you know, Thanksgiving is a big holiday here with some a controversial past. And, but I saw a lot of people posting pictures of, of, of workers harvesting food in the fields. And we would have never been aware of that before of just how important these people making minimum wage, just how important they are to our very lives. And mm. I, I think if nothing else, the pandemic maybe exposed that. It certainly did in the 1340s. And it certainly showed how how dependent um, the upper class was on lower class workers and and changed that dynamic forever. Um, I hope that I hope that it does for us too. And I think that's just what my curiosity is. And I want your take on is how do we 
who's doing the after action review? Who's doing the sociological after action review on this? And how do we like, how do we hold on to that knowledge? You know, because I think a lot of us had that like, oh, I learned so much during the pandemic. Well, what did we learn collectively? And how are we going to hold on to it? Because maybe we just move at such a fast pace now that we don't even absorb some of this stuff. I don't know. No, you're right. You're right. There There will be lessons to learn. And the problem, I think the problem is when you're still in the midst of it or very close to it, as we are, it's difficult to kind of stand back and and reflect on what lessons yeah. we are going to that we are going to learn from this period. Um, I mean, my hope at the beginning of it was that we would learn as a culture to grieve better, yeah, um, to deal with our trauma better. Um, that um, that we would um, be more appreciative of people in those, like you say, those people who you know are marginalised but play such an important role in our lives. Um, yeah, and and that that maybe we would see that maybe the system that we live in maybe isn't the healthiest system for us as human beings, and that we can start to build a society which humanises people. Um, which yeah. which has healthy community, and the importance yeah. of local community. And actually, one of the things that the opposition party here, the left-wing party, wants to do um, if they get into power is to, um, is to give more power to local communities to mm-hmm. shape their own domestic like policies. Um, they want to get rid of the House of Lords, which is radical. Like... Wow. It, but it doesn't seem as radical now as it used to. Yeah. Which is yeah. really interesting. Like, because you know, this guy isn't like a an extremist. He's he's a kind of moderate left, soft left. And they wouldn't have proposed this something like that, you know, pre-pandemic. They would not have done yeah. that. And and I think it's people and I th- I I have this sense that people are more open to a shift in um the political where the political center is right yeah right? because i th- that someone had this theory once that, that the kind of the political center shift there's this big there's a big shift in uh where the political consensus is every 30 or 40 years right the mm-hmm. last one we had was was 1980 1979 1980 because that's when reagan was elected it's when thatcher was elected right yeah. that's when you really started to shift to this kind of market economics trickle down economics all of that extreme capitalism um, you know, the shift that you know, the, the, the center round shifted to the right a bit, you know, and even the progressive party have to shift, had to shift to the right, you know. Um, yeah, it's starting to feel like we're having a moment where things are shifting a bit to the left, and this was starting before the pandemic, I think. But, um, and part of it is the gener- it's a generational thing because, yeah, um, young people, young people growing up are are actually getting educated on things that they don't get taught about in schools because of the internet. Yeah, they're able to learn for themselves. And they're able to learn for themselves. And they, 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 can see all, they can learn all the things that we weren't able to learn and didn't know about because we weren't educated that yeah. way. So they're, 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 their politics is to the left. And, and yeah, and I see that, like, that, you know, that people, left-wing candidates are getting more traction than they used to. And left-wing policies are getting more traction than they used to, um, mm. and so there is a. It feels like there is a there is a shift coming. 
basically. Yeah, like, it does. And um, th- th- I think that will be reflected in upcoming elections. I mean, like Labour are about 20 points ahead in the polls here. Mm. I'm likely to change because economically we are in such a bad position. People are going to suffer even more in the next couple of years. Yeah, and people right. vote with their wallets. So, um, you know, I, I suspect that we will get a change of government in a couple of years. I think, I think those reasons will probably mean that that um, the, the Democrats stay in office as well. Yeah. I mean, like the the recent elections in America, the the Democrats did much better than they should have done for a mid for a midterm thing. Like historically, yeah, and that, that, yeah. that itself is is a big marker of that as well. Yeah. You know, and you've got constantly every election now, you've got a generate the generation who kind of voted for in voted in twenty sixteen for those two election results yeah. in our respective countries. Um, yeah. That generation yeah. are getting older and, and dying. And yeah. you've got a younger generation who are born after the millennium who are coming to voting age. That's what it is. It's and, like coming to voting age. And have yeah. gone through this pandemic as well. Um and they're smart enough to see the reality of what's going on, most yeah. of them. And, yeah. Um, so I think we're going to see it. There is going to be a shift. And as we get that political shift, I think we'll then get a cultural shift. And then yeah. hopefully we'll start to come to a more socially aware yeah. society, a society that values community, that values, um, um, that, that supports the marginalized, that, yeah. Um that where the poorest and the, and the least are supported properly. Yeah. Um so um and yeah. Um so there is hope, you know. Um yeah. and I I I and I think that um it takes time these things take time. Shifts these shifts take time historically, but they do happen. Yeah. So I think that that's what will happen. Yeah. Yeah. And only time will tell, you know, we can sit here and speculate. We're still in it, you know, numbers still show that we're still in a pandemic. Um, yep, absolutely. But, I, um, you know, and, and I know that's felt acutely by people who, who live with, with health vulnerabilities, you know. Um, and so time, time will tell. I think it'll be interesting in 20 years to look back. And, you know, here we are 800 years after the, the Black Death pontificating and and looking at it and and talking about the changes and certainly that'll probably be the case for COVID-19 as well but um yeah it again time will tell I guess yeah absolutely yeah this has been a really great conversation I, I I've loved talking about this stuff um thank you for thank you for all your knowledge and all your wisdom really appreciate it well, I like I said, thank you for making my dreams come true and letting me finally talk to someone who's interested. I mean, I try to bring this up at like baby showers and birthday parties and no one seems to want to talk about it with me. So. <laughs> uh, I'm really glad that finally somebody was willing to have a conversation uh, with me. I think me. there's a lot of conversations you can have around different historical events and pop culture phenomena and movies and things where you can talk about grief and and. Yeah, and how we and how we and how these things affect our culture as well. So yeah. maybe we'll do more of these in the future. Who knows? I hope so. Yeah, me yeah. too. Me too. So uh, where can just where people can find you online and things like that? Yeah, well, I, I'm 
I'm on Instagram, Amanda Held Opelt. Um, it's my handle, and, and I'm on Twitter some, but I don't. I'm not not as much as as some people are. Um, so I occasionally peek and then run and hide. Um, that's kind of my approach to Twitter. Um, and then my website, AmandaHeldOpelt.com, uh, to kind of find out what's going on with my writing and music and all that. So fantastic, great. Yeah. Well, thank, thank you, for James, on the show, and um, I'm sure we'll see you again. Yeah, um, I hope so. And thanks for listening, everybody.